When I was in year five at school, I used to enjoy Friday afternoon classes. Now, I wish I could say it was because I enjoyed mathematics, but that would not be true. It wasn't because I enjoyed English. It wasn't because I enjoyed music classes. Now, Friday afternoon was one of my favorite times at primary school because in year five, our teacher, Miss Ross, would do something that we all looked forward to. She would get a piece of butcher's paper, a large or just white sheet, and she'd post it up on the wall, and she would identify one student, and there was probably a rhyme and reason to what she did, but she would choose one student per week, and it was a time where we would write what we liked about that person in the class. And so she would put up some, a piece of paper, and let's say it was Jason's turn. She would get out her markers, you know, being a primary teacher, she had all the different colour markers and there's probably some pedagogical method to it. Uh, but for most of us, we just sat there, we'd like the colours. She had uh, the, the butcher's paper and she it would say up the, the top, Jace, I like Jason because. Okay, and she would open it to the floor. I like Jason because he's funny, he tells good jokes. Somebody else would say, I like Jason because he shares his lunch with me. I like Jason because he can run fast. And we would start writing things down. I like Jason because he supports the Bulldogs. I like Jason because he is a loyal friend. We used to enjoy this as Miss Ross would take something about that person's character, that person's identity, and she would reveal that, as it were, to the whole class. Now, I know some of you won't believe this, but uh, up until the age of probably about 12, I was a very shy kid. Uh, I didn't speak very much in public. I was a bit of a sook, my mum would say. But uh, I was, I wouldn't have said withdrawn, but I was quite a quiet guy. But it was Miss Ross and my name being put up on a bit of butcher's paper and some words of affirmation that gave me some confidence as a boy in year five. As it was my turn for my name to be up there, what do you like about Malcolm? And I can't to this day remember what it was, but there was at least two or three things. <laughs> and they went up on the butcher's paper. Now, I can still remember that because words actually have great power. Who you are and your identity, there is something powerful about being affirmed who you are. Now, those of you who have read the book, there's a book called The Five Love Languages, and some of us even in this room realize that words of affirmation can be one way of conveying love, but whether or not that is your love language, I really believe that God wants to affirm things about you to help you have the confidence to go through life. You see, when Peter writes 1 Peter, the Christians there are going through a very difficult time. They're not Jewish by background. They've not inherited or grown up in this Christian faith. No, they're living in places like Bithynia, Cappadocia, Asia. They've experienced the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, but because of that, persecution, ostracized, losing their jobs, being rejected by their family. How do you go forward in that? How do you go forward when you are so discouraged? In this passage, what we're going to discover is that God, as it were, is going to put up a butcher's paper 
And he's going to say to the church there, and by extension to us, you know what? You need to remember who you are. You need to remember who you are because of who Jesus is. What would God write on your butcher's paper? What would he say, this person is dot, dot, dot? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to discover what God would say about us. Because like Peter's audience, we are sojourners. We are on a journey. We are exiles. Last week, you'll remember, we talked about the grammar of the gospel. Because of the gospel indicative that God is our saviour, now we have a gospel imperative to respond. We saw that con- con- um, consecutively and consistently in the writings of the New Testament, you get truth that then you are to respond to. So last week, we looked at the response where we are to set our hope, according to verse 13 of chapter 1, on the hope that is to come. We discovered that we are to be holy. We are to live reverentially. We are to love one another. And now we come to chapter 2, and I'm going to actually begin in verse 4. And what he's going to do, again, he's going to go back to truth. If you are to live out and live under times of persecution and hardship and difficulty, he's going to once again say, there are certain things you need to know. So listen as he pulls out the butcher's paper and he makes his way for us, affirming things about our identity in verses 4 to 10. Well, it shouldn't surprise you, his beginning point in wanting to us to think about ourselves is to reframe our identity based on, first of all, who we are in Jesus. This is what he consistently does. In chapter 1, he says, I know you're going through trials, and and before he gets to the so what... He starts with the, let me tell you about God the Father. He is sovereign. You are chosen exiles. God is fully in control. Here again, he goes back to, before telling us what to do, he says, I want to state some truth for you. And it's based, first of all, on the character of God seen here in the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. He starts off with an image of the stone and Jesus as a living stone. Now, we need to stop and think about this for just a minute. Um, Peter loves the stone imagery. In fact, he's going to quote from several verses, some from Isaiah the prophet, some from the Psalms, and he's got this fascination with using this rock metaphor. And I think there's probably good reason for that. You see, Jesus came up to him and said, your name's Simon, but from now on, you're going to be rocky. Okay, loose translation. Cephas, or in Greek, Petra, means rock. And here's rocky. The guy who's been called this, upon this rock, I will build my church. And I don't know if it's for that reason or not, but Peter's starting point is to reflect on this image, this Old Testament language of rock. And he says, you want to build your life upon a rock, here is the rock, and he refers to Jesus as the living stone. You come to him as the living stone. A couple of things about that. First of all, he is the living stone, and the emphasis is upon resurrection. Perhaps the backdrop here, we know from at least chapter 1 that these people were saved. They weren't from a, a Christian background. They weren't even from a Jewish background, and they worshipped many gods. They were all gods of stone. They were all gods who were rock or made of wood. But Peter says, 
the starting point for you is to remember you have a living stone, not a dead rock. That's why this morning we don't come and, and, and kiss objects. We don't, we don't come and bow before a statue because the, the God that we worship is not a dead stone. Rather, the God we worship is a living stone. The language here is one of Jesus being the answer to Old Testament hope, as we will see. But in the ancient world, they would have these gods that were made of rock and stone. But he says, we have a living stone. And to emphasize what he means here, he unpacks some of the Old Testament imagery. Now, in the ancient world, they used to build everything by stone. In fact, I want to, they say sometimes the problem with studying the Bible is it ruins a lot of good sermons. Uh, sometimes there's truths out there that aren't quite actually true. They preach well, but they're not actually biblical. One of those is that Jesus was a carpenter. <gasps> Jesus was a stonemason. Sorry to ruin your, your day here, but uh, we, we uh, often make good sermons about this, by the way. But the Greek word tectone, which is used in Mark 6, is this not the carpenter's son, was used of a stonemason. It's fairly well established that they would, rather than Jesus having a bag of nails than a hammer, it was more likely that he had a chisel. Uh, even if you go to modern-day Israel nowadays, everything's built out of limestone. So good sermons about Jesus carrying the nails and wh whacking them in wood and he'd be whacked into wood on, on a tree. Okay, it's good, but it's probably not biblical at that point. But all of that to say that stone masonry and stone building played a big place here. And what Peter does, talking about Jesus, he takes these Old Testament images of stone and limestone and building with stone, and he applies it to Jesus. He quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16. Look at what it says there in verse 6. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's quoting here a prophet, Isaiah. When Isaiah gave this prophecy, there was, a, there was a lot of tension around the country and there was a real uh, issue that they were going to soon go to war. In fact, that's what would happen and they would ultimately be destroyed and there, there would be a time later on in history uh, of exile. But as Isaiah quoted this to a people, he, there was God's people, they were undergoing all sorts of persecution, which sounds very familiar to where Peter's audience is at. And he's going to say that this prophecy actually pointed to a greater cornerstone, and that cornerstone is Jesus. Now, the cornerstone, whenever you would do a building in antiquity or the ancient Near East, you would get a large stone that was, was large and, you know, hopefully straight, somewhat straight, and you would put that as the starting point upon which you would then build the rest of the edifice. And here, Peter is going to say that we come to this living stone, Jesus, and Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. He is the starting point upon which you build your life. But what do we observe about this stone? Well, the stone, God's chosen stone, is not the chosen stone of the builders. The builders reject it. So God says, I have a plan. I've got a chosen one, and the world rejects it. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we started the book, what did it say about us as the people of God? We are chosen exiles. We are chosen by God. We are special. We are unique in his plan, but we are also exiles. We are homeless. We are sojourners. And that is because the world does not understand us. 
So Peter here is aligning out our own identity, but he's saying you are just connected here with the greater cornerstone who is Jesus. It is upon this living stone which has been rejected by human but chosen by God that, that is precious to him. And so here's the first thing that he will put up on the butcher's paper. Look at how it unfolds. He says, as a result of this, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. He would write up on your butcher's paper, who am I as a sojourner? I am a living stone. You are a living stone. And you're meant to see here a connection to Jesus. You are living because you've been born again because of the work of Christ. You'll be raised again because of the resurrection of Christ. But you're a living stone. You are designed to see I'm connected to God's people because I'm connected to the cornerstone. My life is built upon that foundation and I am part of that building. And I think sometimes in the busyness of life and when we go through discouragement, we can lose track of the fact that we are on the winning team. We are on God's chosen team by nature. That might involve rejection from the builders. We get rejected by other people, but we are no accidents. We are connected to Jesus. I will never be put to shame because I am connected to the cornerstone. The cornerstone in Isaiah's day was metaphorically the descendant of David who would reign forever and ever, and that is the Lord Jesus. And we come, no matter what our trial, I need to remind my soul, I am a living stone. I'm connected to the living stone. But secondly, he had put down on the butcher's paper, who am I or who are we? And I need to remind myself, I'm part of a spiritual house. I am part of a spiritual house. You also, verse 5, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. The language here of house, house can be taken a couple of different ways, uh, just as it can in English as well. But house can mean something physically where you reside. We can talk about the house of Gomez being the family uh, of, of Gomez. Or we can often talk about the house, and here spiritual house, being a reference to the temple. Now this was quite common in Peter's day. People went to the temple, uh, all sorts of temples to worship. And, and here though, he's going to say that through Christ, we are part of God's holy temple we are part of this spiritual house a couple of things about that you have been saved not just to be with you and jesus sometimes as a result of modernism we've had this idea and this mentality i think culturally for about 150 years i did it my way remember that song it was one of the most common songs for funerals i did it my way it was all about rugged individualism and that boiled over even into the Christian faith, where we said, you know what, it's all about my walk with Jesus. It's me and Jesus. Well, no, when you get Jesus, you get the whole family. Okay, because I've said this many times. Lots of things in life you can do by yourself. Being a Christian is not one of them. You were designed to be part of a house, part of a family, part of a temple, part of a group much larger than yourself. I read one commentator this week, Karen Jobes, and she says, and I quote, Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others, not only in one's own generation, but also being united with believers of every generation who likewise have been built into God's grand building project. 
The structure will be completed only when the scaffolding of human history comes down and the kingdom of God is revealed in all of its glory. This passage reminds me, who's my identity? I am part of something much bigger than just me. I am part of a spiritual house, God's spiritual house, God's family, God's community that has been set up with God's great design. When you're going through discouragement, when you're going through hardship, this is one of the things on the butcher's paper that you need to remember. I am not an accident. I am part of God's family. I am part of God's temple. He goes on a bit further. And he, we also discover that we are part of a, a royal and a holy priesthood. I need to remind myself on the butcher's paper, I am part of a royal and holy priesthood. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of priest, probably negative, okay? And particularly culturally nowadays because of unfortunate uh, and wicked uh, activities by, by priests in the history of the church. This is a very negative term, but certainly when... when uh, Peter wrote this. The idea of a priest was somebody who was set apart to do the work of God. And he's going to say to these people from Bithynia, from Cappadocia, from Asia, he's going to say, no, 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 no. You need to now understand because of the work of Christ, you get to be in God's service. It's not just the special people out there. You, you are a servant of the Lord. You know, it's not that you need special training or it's not that you need uh, a degree in theology to become a priest. No, because you are connected to the living stone. Guess what? God has put you as a priest in his service. Now, what was the priest's job? By the time of Jesus, when you would go up to the temple, priests would do all sorts of things. They would light candles. They would have, there would be sacrifices that they'd be involved with. They would run the, run, the day-to-day activities of the, uh, the, the temple itself. And here's the, the thing. When you become a Christian, guess what? God's got a priestly job for you. Just as there was somebody to light a candle in the temple, there was somebody to run the administration, there was somebody to, to clean uh, the, the, the places where they would keep the animals, God has a place for you in his work. You see, sometimes I think we make this mistake of, yeah, Christian ministry is only for those people who get paid. I used to get this quite a lot when I was a, a pastor where somebody would come up to me and they'd say, Malcolm, uh, I've got a friend coming to church tonight. Can you share Jesus with my friends? And I'd say, I can, but why don't you share Jesus with your friends? And there can be this perception, no, 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 that's only the pastor's job. And so pastors have to do a thousand different things in our mentality. But the way that God has designed churches is for pastors and teachers who he gives us that their job is to equip the saints to do the ministry, to do the priestly service. And this is what you have been called to do. Now, what does it look like? Well, it's interesting, we talked about this last week. What does it look like to be a priest in God's service? Fortunately, through the book of Peter, he gives us lots of ways. In fact, if we were to go through a bit further, verse 11, if you go down the, the passage there in your Bible, chapter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners, exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war into your soul, Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He will then go on to talk about how do you live as a godly citizen in a world where there is an evil dictator. What does service look like? He tells us, do good works. Don't live this way, but live that way. 
and peppered throughout the book are imperatives that show us what sort of priests we are. God has not called you to say, okay, I'm going to save your soul so at the end of your life you get to come and live with me in heaven, but from then until then, just do what you want. No, you've been saved to become a priest in God's service. You're part of his temple. He has given each of us in this church gifts, abilities that we might serve him. For some people, he gives wealth. He gives you an excellent job that frees you up financially that you can serve people and and give money so that people in the Philippines can learn who Jesus is. Through others here, he will make you a school teacher. And you can be a Miss Ross who invests in the lives of young boys and girls and tells them about the dignity that they have. But whether it's an external job, whether we're working as accountants, whether we're working as mechanics, or whether it's contributing to the local needs of your community and your church, we have all been created to be active participants, not idly sitting by as consumers. Who am I? I am part of a royal and holy priesthood. God has a job for me. God has a job for you. But then fourthly, he says that we are a chosen people. Verse 9, we are a chosen people. Now, when I lived, I lived in America for 10 years. And one of the things I picked up uh, while living in America was basketball. I lived in Chicago during uh, the era of Michael Jordan, perhaps the greatest basketball player, no, not perhaps, the greatest basketball player of all time. And I remember picking up basketball there and I was more of a footy man or a cricket man, but, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans. So I took up basketball. But here's one of the things about basketball. Even when I moved to Dallas, I'd already been in America, lived there for a bunch of years. I was still a bit slow picking up the basketball. And every Friday at, when I was at Dallas Seminary, I'd go down to the local gym and we'd play pick-up basketball. And this is how it would work. They'd identify two people who were usually pretty good to be the captains. You and you are the captains. Okay, now you pick the players. And even though I was 21, 22, 23, I was still hopeful. I don't want to be the last one. All right, and so they picked me, in fact, uh, uh, not being Texas here, but I remember coming down to it, and it would be a group of us, and it'd be me and one young lady who was like 15, and she'd get picked before me. <laughs> but I tell you, every now and then, there'd be a case where we'd get two captains of the side who didn't know any better. They didn't know any of the players. So I would stand there and look confident, <laughs> and every now and then, I'd be one of the first, yeah, you. There was something good well up within my heart. I'm chosen. I've been picked. I've been nominated. And here, sometimes when we think of our place in God's family, we think, well, you know, it's grace, which it is. And we just think, well, I'm just, I shouldn't be on the team, but I'm on the team. There's an element where, yes, it's all grace, it's all mercy. We discovered that in in chapter one. But one of the astonishing things is that in time past, God in his sovereignty said, I'm going to choose you to be part of my family. I'm going to choose you for my priesthood. I'm going to choose you to be part of my group. And it wasn't that he looked over at leftovers and said, all right, come on in. Yep, we'll have a Peruvian, I guess. You know, we'll, we'll have this guy from, you know, Bankstown. We'll have, okay, yeah, I feel sorry for that guy. God chose you. Sometimes we feel inadequate and because of our sin we feel guilty. But in the marvel of the gospel, when God writes on your butcher's paper, he reminds you, guess what? 
I chose you. You did not choose me. God's sovereignty is a wonderful thing. And the reality is, he's in quotes here from Hosea. You remember Hosea the prophet? He marries this prostitute and she has all these children. She has, and they give them funny names. But one of the, the verses here comes from one of the names. Not my people. You weren't my people. But guess what? You now are my people. And this is the beautiful thing God brings us in. And in God's family, it's not based on your demographic. It's not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on what you do or your ATAR. It's based on his wonderful, generous sovereignty. For Peter, God's chosen people includes people from Tokyo, people from Bithynia, people from Peru, people from Lithgow. God sovereignly has chosen you to be part of his people. When you're discouraged and you feel inadequate this week, when the pressure comes onto you, God hasn't forgotten you. Remind yourself, I'm part of his people. Fifthly, I am part of a holy nation. Look at verse 9 again. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In the Old Testament, God called Israel to be that nation. Israel was nothing special. In fact, I'll be heading over to Israel for the, uh, my eighth trip. Can't wait next year. And as I go back to Israel, I marvel every time I'm there just how not beautiful it is. It's rocks. It's dust. It's dirt. Now, it's beautiful up on the Galilee, my favorite spot. Fantastic. But you look around most of Israel and you think, why would God call this people to be his people? It's strategic that when God calls a people for himself, I wonder if he thought, okay, because if you look even physically where Israel is, the main, they had a road called the Via Maris or the King's Highway, the way of the sea, and it would go down, uh, one would go down the sea, one would go down inland. But if you wanted to go from Asia to Africa, you'd have to go through Israel. You wanted to go, uh, you're up there in Turkey, and you wanted to come down, uh, guess where you would have to go through Israel? Rome. They, this is before they didn't like to go by sea. They would, you wanted to go from Rome to Africa. You'd go all the way around and you'd go through Israel. And I think God said, okay, let me put my people in the most vulnerable spot on a major highway, major intersection of the world. Let me put them there. Let me also give them a climate that is terrible and you have to depend on rain and I will provide rain for them but let's put them in a place that is vulnerable physically from the nations, but also vulnerable uh, geographically in regards to rainfall, and let's see if they can trust me. And he says, Israel, you're it. Now we know from history, Israel, they were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to obey God. And God said, I'll bring rain when you obey, and I'll bring blessing, but when you're, when you're disobedient, no rain. And, and he puts all these nations them so they will trust him but he says but you're my special people i have appointed you as my nation so i want people to see that you are different the way you cut your hair is different the food that you eat is different your traditions are different all of these differences are there so when people say why are you different you say let me tell you about my great god how he is different and the word we use for different is holy now, we know Israel, they use their difference not as a, an outward way to reach the nations. In the end, they make up a bunch of extra rules around the Bible that keep people at arm's length. 
to say, ha, 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 you're not special like us. And Jesus comes, of course, as the true light of Israel. He comes as the true light to the Gentiles. And he starts this new nation that is made up and it was always part of God's plan even when he wrote to Abraham and spoke to Abraham. It's going to be people from every tribe, nation, tongue. And now we are that holy nation. We are the ones God calls and says, I want you to be different than all the world around you. Not different in a weird sense, but different in a compelling sense. So that people say, why is your life different? And you say, let me tell you about our God who is different. He is holy. At the, the next verses, which I've alluded to, verses 11, 12, I urge you as foreigners, exiles, you're a different nation. You're a different group. How, does it, how are you different? Let me tell you, verse 11, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, which all the other nations do. You're different. Live such good lives amongst the pagans, the nations, the other nations out there that they will, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here's one of the things on the butcher paper. I am part of a new nation that's not based on ethnicity, the color of my skin, the language I speak, but it's based on the fact that God has called me to be part of a new people that goes out to the nations and says, we are different. Let us talk to you about our God who is different and our God who is holy. Who am I as a Christian sojourner? I'm part of a holy nation. Then lastly, I am part, I am God's special possession. Look there at the end of verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I am a special possession to God. Now, I don't know if you have any special possession. I don't have much. I've got one that's kind of more of sentimental value, though it has a little bit of monetary worth, and it stays in my office. I have, uh, from my first ever trip to Israel, I did a study trip, and I was studying over there for a month or so, and I went to uh, a well-known person on, he actually, his little shop is on the Via Dolorosa on the old cobbled streets, Mr. Badoon. And I went to Mr. Badoon uh, because I knew that Mr. Badoon had all sorts of ancient artifacts, pots, pans, different elements from yesteryear that he, he would sell. Now, being a poor student, I couldn't get one of the really good ones. I got a cracked pot. Okay, and it's probably representative and symbolic of my life. But I got a cracked pot. And it sits in my office, 3,000 or so years old. There's the Israeli certificate there of authenticity and the place where it was dug and what strata level it was found on. But it's valuable. But here's the thing. You come to my office, I'll look you up and down. If you've got the right references, you know the right people, I'll let you have a look and touch my clay pot. Why? My special possession. It belongs to me. It's really important. As much sentimental value, it's probably worth a couple of hundred dollars as far as monetary value, but it's my special possession. Guess what? You are God's special possession. You are God's special possession. He says, this one here, mine. That's my daughter. That's my son. Belongs to me. You be careful out there. This is my one. You are God's special possession. Your son, your daughter is God's special possession. Friends, can I encourage you when we get discouraged, it's easy for us to look around and even to compare ourselves with others and think we have no value, think that God has forgotten us. 
God has not forgotten you. And he says to you today on this bridge of paper, you're special to me. You're chosen. You're part of my holy nation. You are my possession. This last year, through different circumstances, I've done a little bit of traveling. And while traveling, I unfortunately do a little bit of flying and some of them are long-haul flights. And every now and then, I'm a pretty good flyer. I generally just uh, watch about five minutes of something on the little screen and conk out. But one of the things about flying when you're flying regularly is the issue of turbulence. You get on the airplane now, they give you the, the, the safety briefing, normally in a video nowadays. But they tell you, even when the plane, it, it, the seatbelt sign has been turned off, please leave it on in case of turbulence, unexpected turbulence. I almost know the words now. That's distressing. Uh, but here's the thing. They, they want you to keep your seatbelt on. Why? Because every now and then, planes will go through a storm. Now, if the pilots knew the storm was coming, and sometimes they do, they might go around. But often you'll be flying, and then out of the blue, a storm comes and it throws you about. And that's a bit like life as well. You're going through life and it seems to be going swimmingly and all of a sudden, boom, cancer comes along. You're going through life, it seems to be going okay, boom, a relationship breaks down. A job is lost. An opportunity that you thought from promotion just doesn't come. Worse than that, you're at work or with your family and because of your Christian faith, you're being ostracized and, and being outcast. You're going through the storm. But guess what pilots do when a storm comes? They go up a little bit higher. They put the, I don't know if they, I think they pull back on the stick, go up another 1,000, 2,000 feet. But once they get above the clouds, then all of a sudden they can make sense of the storm that's below them. Some of you are going through difficult times. I believe God's word is for you today to say, get above the clouds. You're going through a hard storm. Remember who you are. Who am I? Who am I as a sojourner? Who am I in God's view? What have we learned today? God says to you, look at your butcher's paper. You are a living stone. You're part of my spiritual house. You're part of a royal and holy priesthood. You're part of a chosen people. You are part of a holy nation. You are God's special possession. Why does he do all of that for us? The answer comes in a purpose clause that's found there in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God has a purpose for you in life. He has a reason that you've, all these things on the butcher's paper are there. And that is so that you might delight in the Lord Jesus Christ and bring praise to his name as the God who is holy and the God who is sufficient. May that give you confidence as you navigate the challenges of life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this exhortive, encouraging, and challenging word from your servant, Peter. We thank you for these truths. Lord, so often we hear even truths like this and we say it sounds too good to be true. But Lord, as we sojourn, as we live with this tension of waiting for a kingdom that is yet to come, we place our confidence again this morning in the fact that we follow the living stone. And I pray that we, as living stones in his likeness, would live in such a way, recognizing who you are, recognizing who we are, that this world would see the good works that we do and glorify you on the day that you visit us. For we ask this for Jesus' reputation.
Amén.